Now, the Lord's Supper that we just observed is really um, the sacrifice of God. It's the central truth of the Bible. The Old Testament, in all its parts, prepared for it and led up to it. And the New Testament sets it out, explains it, and applies it to our lives. When Christ suffered on that cross and died, it was God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who was sacrificed, who died that day to pay for our sins. Of course, he didn't stay dead. It was the resurrection from the dead which validated that sacrifice and gives us confidence that our sins really were dealt with on that cross. There's no more important truth to humankind than that fact of history. And our text today deals specifically with God's sacrifice and tells us some of what it means. There's more than could be said, much more than could be said about it. But what we discover here really, I think, ought to move us and change us and maybe in some way renew our appreciation for our God. And so I would ask you to join me once again in Romans chapter 3, where we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 31. And, of course, Sharon's going to have those uh, passages up on the screen on either side of me. When we turn to this uh, passage, we we, uh, discover that what Paul writes here to the Romans, well, he tells us five or six things about God's sacrifice. And the first thing he tells us is something we know really quite well. Uh, Of all that we see here, it's the most important thing that we can see. Everything else kind of flows from this truth. And Paul tells us this sacrifice that he's writing about here paid for our sins. And so we read in the beginning of verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. God's sacrifice did away with our sins. The Greek word is variously translated in different versions, which the NIV renders sacrifice of atonement, simply is the means of paying for sin. That's what Christ did for us. It required that he die, that he shed his own blood in our place. But when he did that, our sins were taken away. The sacrifice of atonement covers all sins of all kinds, of all people throughout the ages. And what follows makes that a little clearer, but for us right now, we may be able to uh, think of this in this way. We might try to imagine, as hard as it would be, we might try to imagine a man that was uh, just a man and was yet born without sin and managed to make it uh, all the way through his life without sinning. It may be, it's not clear that it is, but it may be that such a man could exchange his life for one other person, that he could atone for the sin of one sinner. Now, a sacrifice like that, if one could 
even be thought of wouldn't go very far. And even so, we know that no such man exists except for Jesus Christ, who was indeed a man, but he was more than a man. He was God in the flesh. And as such, his sacrifice was infinite, and it more than covers all of the wrong of our broken world. Uh, No more than a drop of black ink let go into the vast Pacific Ocean is all the wreckage of human existence covered by the shed blood of Christ. Well, this atoning is more than a kind of a mere dilution of sin like ink and water that's uh, merely just not visible anymore. The atonement puts an end to sin so that it no longer exists. No doubt, remember the disaster in 2010 at the Deepwater uh, Horizon well in the Gulf of Mexico. It spilled 210 million gallons of crude oil into the ocean. There was an immediate damage to uh, marine life in the area and uh, devastating consequences on the coastal lands when the oil reached them. But the ocean itself uh, deals effectively with oil which is in it. Science reveals that as soon as that oil hits the water, the ocean begins a deconstructing process, destroying and metabolizing and transforming that oil, which is so harmful, into safer substances. In a relatively short period of time, the oil no longer exists. But God's sacrifice is like that. We don't know how it works, but it atones for our sins. And as far as we're concerned, our sin no longer exists. It has been effectively dealt with in the ocean of God's love. Now from this truth, we can learn even more. Uh, when, When we see and understand this, we begin to see and understand even more. You see, the sacrifice of God teaches us something about God himself. Paul tells us that it proves that God is just, and he is the justifier. And so we pick up our reading in the middle of verse 25 when Paul says, He did this, that is, God sent Christ to the cross to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished and he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. And and that last phrase tells us something that we ought to know about God. You see, our God is just and he is the one who justifies those who trust in his sacrifice. Now there is, I, I think, confusion about the relationship between justice and mercy. Somehow in our Christian circles we've gotten this idea that they're really in competition, that God must um, somehow let go kind of part of his justice if he's to be merciful to us. Yet the scripture teaches something entirely different. The Bible reveals that in his mercy, God is just. This passage is just one of those which tell us that. Another one is 1 John 1, 9, which I think we all know because we need it so often. 
that says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Justice and mercy are not in competition. The right way to think about this is that justice is expressed in one of two ways. Either mercy to the repentant sinner or judgment on the unrepentant sinner. In both cases, mercy or judgment, God is just. Now, sin had to be paid for. And it was on the cross. So it would be unjust of God if he were not merciful to one who has come to Christ and is covered by his sacrifice. And then to to fail to judge the sin of the unrepentant is not mercy. It's sheer injustice. The text tells us that, that God passed over, and I can't help but wonder if there isn't an echo of the Jewish Passover in these words, but God passed over the sins committed before the coming of Christ. And, and here we're really talking about those people who had repentant hearts, but he didn't punish those sins not yet, even though the sin had not been paid for because he knew what he was going to do. He knew the sacrifice that he would make on their behalf. And so as an expression of his justice, he could be merciful. The cross fulfilled God's justice and it paid for the sins of humankind. God is just and he is the one who justifies those who come to him for forgiveness offered on the cross and see when we begin to grasp that truth about the sacrifice of God we gain insight into some other things yet when we see this we we understand that God is just and the one who justifies well then it excludes any boasting or any contribution to Christ's sacrifice on our part verses 27 and 28 make this abundantly clear we read where then is the boasting it's excluded because of what law the law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You know, maybe the, the easiest way to grasp this, I still struggled with this section of Scripture until it dawned on me what I think Paul was doing here. And the easiest way to grasp it is, is to think of what's happening here as kind of like a short bullet point list. And Paul has just told us about God's justice. And, and in that first bullet point, he asks a rhetorical question, which he answers this way. We have nothing to be proud about in this matter. Our justification is God's work. And the second bullet point follows that same pattern of answering a rhetorical question and there Paul declares this our justification is not of our work it doesn't come from the keeping of the law but it's all of God's doing we're justified by God's sacrifice by faith 
trusting in Christ's finished work and not by anything that we do. Now, it is true that once we come to faith, that faith works. But we're not saved by our works. If an ant and an elephant are both pushing on a wall, and the wall comes down because of the elephant, the ant adds nothing at all. That ant might walk around and boast and say, we pushed that wall down. But it was all of the elephant, and the wall was coming down with or without the ant. That's what Christ has done for us. Christ's work on the cross for our justification requires nothing from us. It can add nothing to it. We have nothing to brag about. That sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross means we don't do anything and we can't boast about anything. But that sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross also does something else. It demonstrates that God is the God of the whole world. In another bullet point of the same kind that we just looked at, Paul declares that very truth when he says in verses 29 and 30, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Our God is the God. He is the God of all the world. He's not the God just of the mountains or just of the plains or or the oceans or anything else, but he is the God of both the mountains and the plains and the oceans and the land and the earth and all the heavenly bodies and anything and everything else and all of creation. He's not the God of the Jew alone, but of the Jew and of all other people. He is God Almighty, and all things belong to him. That sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice demonstrates that God is the God of all. And Isaiah tells us that same truth about our Savior. When he writes, God says, It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. To save one person is beyond our ability, let alone an entire people. But the saving work of Christ is is beyond measure. It has power to save any and all who come to him. You know, the sin of the whole world throughout time piled up in a heap is no more to the ocean of God's love than a small sand castle to a giant wave breaking on the beach. It wipes away any and all trace that it was ever there. God is the God of all. Now, there's one more thing in this bullet point list that uh, we begin to grasp when we understand the sacrifice of God. And that is that he, uh, that he is the one who justifies. Yeah, we find that we're able, when we realize this truth, we find that we're able to finally begin to live in a way that's pleasing to God. 
Verse 31 says this, Do we then nullify the law by his faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. You see, we begin to be able to live a life which pleases our God. It's a, it's a life of faith and of trust. We, we begin walking with God. I mean, we make our way through this world, not trusting ourselves, but putting all of our weight on him. Instead of trying to keep a list that we're checking off as we go and discovering over and over and over again just how constantly we fail and how badly we fail, we begin living as a child of the king. And we find that with his help, we're beginning to succeed beginning to live in a way that's pleasing to him. Not that we're perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but the life of God that is in us begins coming out of us when we walk in faith. You see, we take our eyes off of ourselves and we look to God and we begin to really live a life that is pleasing. There's one last thing that this text, um, along with many other places in the Bible, makes clear. Uh, we, we've said it many times this morning, and we've kind of talked all around it. And what I want to do is I just want to state it clearly. And then I want to take it, and I want to put it into the context of this passage uh, so we understand, I think, better what God is saying to us this morning. You see, the sacrifice of God, the saving work of Christ on the cross, having the power to save any and all who come to him, revealing him as the God of the all, whole world, which excludes boasting and any contribution on our part, that's appropriated where it becomes effective in the life of each individual simply and solely when they take God at his word and put their faith in him. So most of the time, the first evidence that that is happening is seen when a person calls out to God, when the person prays and asks God to forgive him his sins or her sins and, and to save them. And, and, and with all their heart, they want to follow Jesus wherever he leads. That's the kind of faith we're talking about and what Christ did on that cross. But the context of this truth, as it's revealed here, it tells us there's been a kind of a, a dramatic uh, and earth-shaking, really a cosmic change which occurred between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see it in that very first verse that we looked at this morning, in verse 25, where Paul says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. You understand in the Old Testament, the worshiper presented the sacrifice to God and hoped that God would accept it. But now it's different. Things have changed. Something momentous has occurred. 
In the New Testament, it's God who presents the sacrifice, and we're the ones who either accept it or reject it. Now, if we accept it, we do so by faith, which is the only way we can have it. And if we do that, we have forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. And we declare by that very action that God is just and that he is the one who justifies those who come to him by faith. But when we reject it, we, we turn our back on God and everything good. We put ourselves in the place of a judge and by our actions, Declare God's offering as not worthy of our devotion. And so such a person embraces death. That's the choice that God sets before every human being. It's the choice he presents to you here today if you haven't yet come to him. He says to you, And he says it just as surely as I'm standing here and you're listening to me today. He is saying to you, if you haven't come to him in faith yet, he's saying, here is my sacrifice. Here is my son given for you. Now, what do you do with it. Every human being is brought to a place like this. And every human being will accept my prayer that if any of you are here today you don't know Christ as your Savior and you won't let another day even another moment pass you by but you'll come to the only true God who will give you life and forgiveness and himself just I'm available to you. Other people who know Christ and walk with him, be available to anyone here who might need help in understanding this truth. There's nothing more important in life. Nothing more important in eternity. Would you pray with me? Father, and those of us who have put our trust in what you accomplished for us through the death of your son, we give you thanks, and we once again recommit ourselves to you, the living God. 
And we join our hearts and voices together now. Ask for those who are still on the outside. That you might work in a special way in their heart. That you would open their mind. That you would move in their spirit. That they would come to the cross before it's too late. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.